You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by the Complete Concussion Management Clinical Network. Are you suffering from a concussion? Concussion symptoms that just aren't getting better? Maybe you're in the wrong place. Maybe you're seeing the wrong healthcare professional. Visit completeconcussions.com slash find dash a dash clinic to find all of the local professionally trained concussion clinicians in your area. Each of our partnered clinics have gone through extensive training on concussion assessment, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation, and will be able to quickly determine the root cause of your symptoms and work with you to develop a plan to get rid of them. If you don't know what's driving your symptoms, you can't ever hope to relieve them. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. They have a 98% patient satisfaction rating and the net promoter score as judged by real patients is higher than Amazon, Netflix, and Apple. Completeconcussions.com slash find dash a dash clinic. You won't regret it. Uh, so today we are doing uh, just a live Q&A. Today is Bell Let's Talk Day, which is a, a mental health initiative by Bell Canada. So it's a thing that's in Canada. Um, and basically the it's called Bell Let's Talk Day and Bell donates um, money towards mental health initiatives for um, every text message sent today, as well as social media posts and share with the hashtag Bell Let's Talk Day. And uh, so in honor of that, we just decided to be here to talk to people uh, and whatever questions that people have that they need answered with respect to concussion. Uh, I'm basically making myself available for the next half an hour, 40 minutes or so, um, depending on how long you guys have questions to answer all of your clinical patient related uh, concussion questions um, to try and share my knowledge with with you guys so for those listening on the audio version today's episode is ask concussion doc uh number 79 Uh, a number of you have sent in questions ahead of time so i'll just kind of start there um and anyone who has questions can post into the comments i see somebody asking (laughs) where can i post my concussions I think they meant to say questions. You can just post the questions right into the comment box, or there's a question tab that you can uh, that you can post in as well. Um, like I said, I'll be here for uh, a little while. Uh, okay, so first question that came in was asking about the keto diet. So the question is: any proof of a keto diet helping with post-concussion symptoms, or would you recommend it following an anti-inflammatory diet? instead. Keto diet, uh, for those that don't know, is essentially a high fat-based diet. Um, In and of itself, it can be anti-inflammatory provided you're eating healthy fats and not unhealthy fats. So fats that are higher in omega-3 versus omega-6 arachidonic acids um, tend to be healthier fats. Uh, So, you know, plant-based fats tend to be better than, you know, things like bacon and cheeses and things like that. So avocados, uh, 
fish oils and fish tend to be better than things like um, you know beef that's not necessarily grass-fed however grass-fed beef can have high uh, omega-3 concentrations and is um, um, generally more on the anti-inflammatory spectrum. So it really depends if you're going to be eating meat, what type of meat you're eating. But that being said, in terms of um, the diets, keto versus versus anti-inflammatory, keto, because of its high fat content, the brain tends to like fats as fuels. Uh, and that was the the idea behind the ketogenic diet. Also, things that are more carbohydrate-based uh, can be more inflammatory. And so um, that, again, is a kind of a checkpoint for, for the keto diet. In terms of research and studies that have been done on the keto diet, there's only been a handful of um, mice studies. There haven't been, there hasn't been too much in terms of um, ketogenic diet studies done on humans. In fact, I haven't seen a single study done looking at concussion patients on ketogenic diet. The studies that have been done in animals, in the mice, comparing them on a ketogenic diet versus just a traditional mouse chow diet following concussion finds that the ketogenic diet is beneficial. Recovery rates are better. Uh, inflammatory markers are down. Um, cognitive functions are up. So it seems like there is promise for the ketogenic diet for concussion patients specifically, but there isn't enough uh, evidence yet to say that you should be doing one or the other. We typically follow more of a anti-inflammatory type diet or low inflammatory diet, which is essentially avoiding things like refined sugars, avoiding um, um, you know processed meats and foods, trying to eat more fruits and vegetables and, and more high quality meats. So your grass-fed beefs, your wild-caught salmons, those type of things that generally have less uh, hormones and antibiotic use. Um, because those are, you know, more more healthy in terms of just lowering your inflammatory, you know, profile down. Um, and one of the reasons that we stick to that more so than keto is that keto is actually quite difficult to do, and not everyone is going to respond well to a ketogenic diet. Um, generally, it's a lot easier and more balanced of an approach to take just kind of a, you know, a low inflammatory diet. And it's not necessarily the anti-inflammatory diet, although that's what it's typically called. It's just avoiding the really pro-inflammatory things, right? Because concussion causes inflammation within the brain. You're also going to get a whiplash and other soft tissue injuries that can occur at the same time that are also, they cause inflammation, but they also cause a number of the same symptoms as concussion. And so when you're, um, you know, eating foods that contribute to increasing inflammation, uh, you know, foods that are high in omega-6 and processed stuff and refined sugars, that can promote more inflammation, which keeps your symptoms there and can actually exacerbate and make your symptoms worse. Um, and a way to kind of explain this as well is, um, is I have asthma. I have exercise-induced asthma. I've had it my whole life. Uh, but once I switched my diet and started eating healthier and not eating sugars and not eating uh, you know, gluten and things like that, um, I, I, I don't need my inhaler anymore, right? So, but when I eat those foods, if I eat something with sugar in it, almost right away I start to wheeze. So it's a very quick, you know, it just increases my inflammation and my inflammation is felt in my lungs. People with a concussion, their inflammation is brain-based, could be in their neck or otherwise. When they eat these foods, it just promotes that inflammatory response and therefore they get these increased symptoms. Well, if that's you and you're continuously eating this stuff, 
you're potentially just delaying your recovery or promoting increased symptoms on an ongoing basis. So um, I'm kind of a roundabout answer, but basically the way that I would say for most patients, we don't recommend going strict keto because there isn't enough evidence to support it yet. We typically just have them avoid foods that are, um, you know, tend to be more pro-inflammatory. So refined sugars, um, uh, gluten and dairy can be pro-inflammatory for a lot of people. So we have them just avoid those foods, try to eat uh, healthy plants, veggies, um, and, and high quality, uh, meats and, uh, people tend to do very well on that. And this isn't a long-term thing. This isn't something you do for life. This is something you do for a few weeks to see how you respond. So sometimes we get challenged on people saying, you know, how hard it is to do this. And, you know, what about, you know, vitamin deficiencies and that type of stuff? Well, the risk of that is, are, are very low because you're only doing this for a period of a few weeks just to see how it affects you. Cause then you can start reintroducing things back into your diet and seeing if that then brings back some of your symptoms. And if so, maybe those particular foods need to be avoided more long-term. And that's something you might need to have some additional counseling on, maybe something you shouldn't be doing just kind of on your own. Uh, let's see if any questions have rolled in. I see a lot of comments. Uh, let's see. Question. I'm on constant alert, anxious, hypervigilant. I read something on the amygdala being affected after concussion, uh, which related to this fear. What's your opinion on it? How do I make it better? Well, there's a number of areas in your brain that can become affected following concussion. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that like your amygdala is affected because you're feeling anxious or nervous after a concussion. There's a lot of things that can make you feel anxious or nervous after a concussion. And that is a very common complaint following concussion. Um, I mean, it's probably one of the most common things that we see is that people tend to be very anxious, kind of on hyper alert. Uh, sometimes they'll even feel nauseous because their stomach is always kind of turning with, with anxiety. Uh, that's, that's a common response, but it also can cause a number of the other symptoms that we see in concussion. So people that are anxious tend to have more difficulty sleeping. And then if you have difficulty sleeping, you're going to have difficulty with, you know, your next day, you're going to feel fatigued and foggy and all these other things. And you might have headaches and all this stuff. So it kind of all tends to go in together. And also if you're not sleeping properly and you have headaches, that can make you feel more anxious and all these things. So it becomes this snowball effect. It doesn't necessarily mean that a certain area of your brain is what's causing it because it's usually a combination of different things, right? Mental health is a complex um, system. And so ten, when you have these types of, of symptoms, the biggest thing is to try and find ways to get the anxiety under control. I frequently refer to mental health care professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, sometimes even changing your diet. So some of the stuff I was talking about earlier, uh, if you can lower that inflammatory um, uh, load on your diet, sometimes that will make people feel much less anxious. It might improve your sleep, which then will reduce your anxiety. So again, everything is so interconnected that... Um, it's, it's often by, you know, like, let's say your other symptoms are headaches. Well, if I can get rid of your headaches, you're probably going to feel less anxious to begin, you know, and then you kind of start knocking things off the list as you go down. So to try and relate something like anxiety or being on constant alert to one particular area of, you know, brain function um, is not 
gonna yield the the answer you're looking for what you really need to do is look at this from a global approach and say okay I have anxiety right now how do I control my anxiety whether that's talk therapy whether that's a short course of medication whether or not that's mindfulness and meditation based trying to be more in the present moment whether that's controlling your other symptoms that may be contributing to your anxiety so for example maybe it's maybe it's cognitively maybe you feel that you know you're you're falling behind on work or you're falling behind on school and that's contributing to your anxiety well maybe we can make some accommodations for you academically where we can get some of your assignments removed or pushed which may reduce your anxiety do you know what i mean so it's really patient dependent so without knowing your case specifically it would be hard for me to you know pin it on any one thing but just know that it is very interconnected and there's a lot of things that that are at play here that um you know kind of kind of assist in in this so um find ways that you can reduce your anxiety uh and a good place to start would be you know talking to your doctor talking to your healthcare provider um and looking into maybe even something to start with talk therapy um and then try to do some self-help things like uh diet control and um uh, meditation. Thanks for the question. Again, <laughs> people want these. You know, what is what therapy for the eyes is the most effective? This is a question that that came in on the concussion doc side. What therapy for the eyes is the most effective? The answer is it depends on what your issue is. So. If you have a convergence problem, then the most effective therapy for you is going to be working on convergence. If you have, you know, saccadic dysfunction, then it's working on that. If you have an accommodation issue, then it's that. If you have, you know, any, it depends on what your problem is. And that's kind of, you can't, I find it difficult to answer these blanket questions of um, what therapy is the most effective because it really depends on what the issue or impairment is. A lot of times people with eye problems actually have a vestibular problem. And so when you when you focus in on just the eyes because you're thinking it's my eyes because your eyes feel weird, uh, you may miss the other problem which may be the vestibular problem or which may be a problem with your neck. So all of these systems play into each other. So the most effective therapy, it depends on what your issue actually is. And so unfortunately that's about as much as I can give you. Uh, let's see, I'll go over here to complete concussions and see if there are any questions. Signs and symptoms. Uh, so somebody's asking, tell us more about signs and symptoms. Do you mean signs and symptoms of just concussion in general? That was doctor on duty. So if you... Let me know more about what you wanted on that one. Everyone's saying thank you for the information. Great. Um, Someone's asking here, uh, what's what's NAD? Acronym of NAD, shiny pink. 
I can answer the other questions. I just tell me what NAD is and I can answer that one too. Uh, my husband had multiple concussions. The last one was seven years ago. He had, he's had 40 dives in the hyperbaric chamber, neurofeedback, NAD, IVs. What are your NAD thoughts? Um, I don't know what NAD is yet. So tell me what that is. But um, in terms of hyperbaric oxygen, uh, the evidence actually suggests that hyperbaric oxygen is not effective for concussion recovery. Uh, this is a question we get a lot and we have a lot of people that ask us and say, Hey, I've been recommended to try hyperbaric and you know, what should I, should I actually, you know, should I actually, uh, go through with this? The evidence says for, there's probably been, you know, a lot of times with concussion, we say, well, there's not enough research yet to know one way or the other with hyperbaric, there's actually quite a bit of evidence to suggest that it is no better than a placebo. So what they do in these studies is they'll take people and put them in a hyperbaric tube. So they'll have like uh, forced uh, high pressure, um, full 100% oxygen at, you know, two and a half times the atmospheric pressure. And the idea is to drive more oxygen into, you know, the body and into the tissues to help things recover. Um, they then will then take a control group who also has concussion and they'll put them into a hyperbaric tube, but it'll be surface air. So there'll be no pressurization and the oxygen level will be the same as it is in general, just air. So surface air, air as if it was on the surface of the earth. And what they find is after 40 treatments, so the protocol is like between 40 and 60 treatments and you do it every day for an hour, you sit in this tube and it's super expensive. Um, and yet they find that there's absolutely zero difference between people that get the forced two and a half times atmospheric pressure, 100% oxygen. There's absolutely no difference between them and those that are just breathing surface air. So it's one of these things where these clinics are popping up all over the place. There's one in Toronto. I don't even know if it's still around, but it was called The Concussion Clinic. And like, so obviously people are going to go to the concussion clinic and all it was was hyperbaric oxygen. And yet the evidence actually suggests that it is no better than a sham or placebo thing. So people may be feeling better after they're hyperbaric, but that is essentially chalked up to placebo because when you do a trial and compare it with placebo, the placebo is just as effective as the actual treatment intervention. So that's my thoughts on hyperbaric. Um, there's actual evidence to suggest that it is no better than placebo. And there's a good amount of evidence. Actually, the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation um, came out with their guidelines on persistent symptoms recently, and they had high quality evidence to suggest that hyperbaric oxygen was not effective for patients with persistent concussion symptoms. That's a fact. Um, question, are all post-concussion cognitive issues treated equally? No. Um, and it really depends on who your provider is. The way that I see post-concussion cognitive issues is that not all cognitive problems are actually cognitive problems. So what somebody may perceive as a memory impairment is not actually a memory impairment. Um, patients that 
um, let's say, you know, somebody that is because of concussion, because of the media that's kind of grabbed a hold of this, anyone with a concussion starts to get very worried that they're going to have long-term problems or that it's going to affect their brain function and all these different things. Concussion is a very short duration injury. Concussion uh, creates this metabolic energy deficit, which recovers uh, within a fairly short period of time. Now, the symptoms of concussion in some patients, you know, between 30 and 40% of patients now can last a little bit longer. And the reason for that is there's there's kind of five main reasons why they would have persistent symptoms. I'm combining categories to make it make it five, but essentially you're dealing with blood flow issues, autonomic uh, issues, um, visual or vestibular issues, which I lump in as one, uh, neck issues or cervicogenic issues, um, inflammation, like I said before, uh, hormone imbalances are becoming. Um, more well-known and more well-studied, and we're finding a lot of uh, hormone imbalances that can be treated with hormone replacement therapies and things. Uh, and the last one is, is, is the psychological. And to say psychological, people get you know, their back up against that and say, well, you know, it's, it, I'm saying that it's all in your head. I'm not saying that it's all in your head. I'm saying that um, your mind is very powerful and can um, contribute to these issues. Also, we know that patients that have pre-existing anxiety and pre-existing depression tend to take longer to recover because the symptoms tend to overlap with those conditions and and concussions. So it becomes difficult to separate what is what, particularly if you have a pre-existing condition. Um, but the other issue that happens is that because you're kind of now primed to think that your memory may be affected People start looking for things within their day-to-day that shows that maybe their memory is impaired. So if you think – it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. So if you think that because um, I have a concussion, that might affect my memory and then you're looking throughout your day and let's say you walk into a room and forget why you came into that room. You might immediately think, oh my god, why am I – what did I come in here for? And then start thinking, oh my god, my concussion, my memory. And then you start to think that you have a memory impairment. But this is something that happens to everyone from time to time, right? I frequently will walk into a room and go, okay, what did I come in here for? Because you're, you're not thinking about what you're doing. You're distracted. So a lot of times people that, that think they have memory problems will actually go and get tested for memory from a neuropsychologist that will find out that they actually have normal memory, right? So it depends on what your cognitive issue is. So when you say, are all cognitive issues treated equally? The answer is, is no. And the way that I approach this is first, I'll put them through, you know, is this a blood flow issue? Because sometimes if it's a blood flow issue uh, and we get them exercising, that will improve the cognitive issues. So we don't need to go down the road of neuropsychologists and all this stuff because once we do that, all of a sudden they feel that their cognitive issues um, have come back. They've, or they, they have gone away, sorry. Uh, or maybe maybe you change their diet. And as soon as you change their diet, they feel that their mind is sharper. They're not having concentration difficulties anymore. They're able to, to you know, focus better. Um, maybe it's a vestibular problem. You know, maybe they're not seeing the paper right when they're reading it. So they're reading books and they're reading, you know, newspapers and they're online, but they're not able to grasp what they're reading. And they think they have a cognitive problem, but really they have an ocular motor problem. And if we can fix how that works, all of a sudden now they're able to retain the information because they're seeing it properly. Right, So we have to basically go down the list of finding out why the person is having the issues in the first place. If we say, okay, your blood flow issue is fixed, 
you're no longer having any visual or ocular issues. Your vestibular problems are gone. Your headaches are now gone. And the, the symptoms that are lingering are still cognitive or fogginess. Then we say, okay, we're going to get a neuropsychologist um, to, to take a look at this and involve a neuropsych in the case. Sometimes we'll do that. We'll do that early on, depending on the case, right? So, so not all cognitive issues are treated equally. It really depends on the case. Answer. Um, I see a little question here. I'm going to look that. How do I get to this? Oh, So these are the questions from before, I guess. All right. Okay. Going over to complete concussions now. Question. Regulation hormones, something. So the question is, um, I'm having trouble finding um, information on treatment for hormones and stuff. Um, can you elaborate on the treatment for those issues? First, you'd have to get your blood work done to see if there's any hormone imbalances. Sometimes this can be done through your family doctor. Sometimes you may need a referral to uh, a specialist of some kind. Um, many, many physicians aren't um, up on the latest concussion research. And so you might ask them to get your hormones checked and they might immediately kind of discredit you and say, you don't need to get your hormones checked. Why would you need your hormones checked? Um, Basically what you're looking for, the ones that have been implicated are, are pituitary function hormones, things like growth hormone, thyroid stimulating hormone, uh, adrenocorticotropic hormone, growth hormone, testosterone, estrogen, those types of hormones. So pituitary function test is um, kind of what you're looking for is to look at the levels of those hormones and they can fluctuate throughout menstrual cycles. They can fluctuate day to day. So it's tough to get kind of a uh, a good read on them. Um, this is not my specialty by any means. I typically will refer out for this. Uh, there's people that specialize in this now. So there's a, there's a clinic in Burlington, for example, uh, which I'm, I'm just outside of Toronto. So there's a clinic in Burlington now that, that does a lot of this type of stuff. So it's really trying to see what's in your area, trying to uh, get your hormone levels checked through blood work by, by your physician. Um, and then a lot of it is is just replacement therapies. So if you have low, you have certain low hormone levels, then you would you would take um, different supplements to to boost those hormones. But first is finding out where the issues lie. Uh, how come sometimes when something hits my head, uh, minor or a hard one, I can get affected after for a few days, weeks, etc. Sometimes I'm not affected. Other times I am by the smallest hit. So, um, <laughs> this is a question that we get a lot. I've, I had a whole podcast topic on this about minor hits. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background on it. Um, but it's something that I feel like I answer all the time. Um, concussion requires quite a bit of force to happen. Um, most of the research we have on this is from instrumented helmets and football players, and they'll have all these accelerometers and helmets. And as hits are happening on the field, they're getting the data to the sidelines to see how much, how much force is involved in those hits. And then if somebody has a concussion injury, they'll look to see on the data how hard that hit was, how much force was delivered in that. 
and they find that the amount of force required for concussion is between 70 and 120 G's of acceleration. And what does that mean or put that in perspective? Well, um, it, biomechanical research from car accidents show that if you're, if you're in a car accident, um, your airbags in your car are set to deploy at a change of velocity of about 50 kilometers an hour or 30 miles an hour. So if you're in a car that's doing 30 miles an hour or 50 kilometers an hour, uh, they're the same thing. If you ram, ram into something, your airbags will deploy, or at least they're supposed to. That, will, that translates into about 60 Gs of acceleration through your seatbelt. So you're talking about concussion requiring 70, 70 to 120 Gs in adults. In kids, it's a little bit lower um, from the preliminary research that's been done on kids. But in adults, it's kind of that it's, – it's a lot of force. So thinking about the equivalent of a car accident, right, 60 Gs through your seatbelt versus 70 to 120 to your head. So because concussion is caused by the brain cells actually getting pulled apart, like stretching – they need enough stretch to to create the ion exchange that is concussion. And so a little bump to your head is not causing concussion injury. It just doesn't have the amount of acceleration required to actually stretch your brain out. So I get patients sometimes that will, you know, they'll go over a speed bump and they'll be worried that they've given themselves another concussion because they'll feel off. The problem is that concussion is not specific. The symptoms of concussion overlap with so many other conditions. For example, whiplash. Okay, Remember I said 70 to 120 Gs to cause concussion injury. Whiplash injury only takes 4.5 Gs. A sneeze, if you were to sneeze, a sneeze is 3.5 Gs. So if you have a really good sneeze, you can throw your neck out. And people have probably done this. People listening right now have probably said, oh, yeah, I've done that before. The symptoms of whiplash or strain injury of the neck are the exact same as concussion. Headaches, dizziness, fogginess, uh, confusion, concentration difficulties, balance impairments, etc. You name it. My entire thesis when I was going through my sports med fellowship um, was on comparing patients with whiplash and patients with concussion on what their symptom profiles look like. And they were identical. You could not tell the difference between somebody with concussion and somebody with whiplash based on the symptoms that they were reporting. So if you have a minor bump and you start to feel symptomatic, that could be that you've done something to your neck. But because the symptoms are the same, you now think, oh, it's my head. Well, it might not be. If you've had previous concussions, anytime you get a concussion, you're going to get a whiplash injury. The whiplash injury, if you've created some neck dysfunction that you haven't addressed and you have this dysfunctional neck, your symptoms may go away, but any little bump or twist afterwards may kind of set that off again. And now you have this recurrence of concussion symptoms that aren't concussion symptoms. They're, they're neck dysfunction symptoms. So smaller hits like that could be a neck issue. Also, you're the same person that asked about anxiety. So anxiety can cause the same symptoms as concussion too. So anytime people that, like you said, you're hypervigilant on your previous question. So anytime now people that have had concussions before that are hypervigilant, that are anxious, anytime you're in a crowded environment, you're always on edge because you don't want anyone to hit you or bump you. Anytime you're in a car and going with speed bumps, people will – I've had patients before that say they hold their head like this as they're driving because they're so worried about any little bump or move that might cause another concussion. Well, 
that alone can increase anxiety so that let's say you have a hit, you get anxious. Anxiety looks a lot like concussion, right? You start to feel like, like a little bit off, a little bit disoriented, a little bit confused because there's just a lot of, a lot of thoughts going on, a lot of anxiousness going on, which feels like concussion. But also then people tend to hold their tension in their necks. Well, if you have a neck issue and you hold your tension in your neck, guess what? The next day or two, you're going to start to get headaches. And then all of a sudden, it's going to be this relapse of concussion symptoms that is actually just a constellation of other things, but not necessarily the concussion anyway, right? So I hope I make sense on that. Um, But that's basically answering that question, right? Concussion requires a pretty substantial amount of force. So a little bump may cause the same symptoms as concussion, but is not, it's not enough force to have caused the concussion to begin with. So it's definitely not concussion, right? Um, to put this another way, if I sprain my ankle really bad, it's going to hurt just as bad as if it's broken. And I might actually think it's broken, but I'll go to the doctor. They'll do an x-ray on my ankle and say, no, it's not broken. It's sprained. But with concussion, I can't take an x-ray of your brain and say, no, it's not your brain. It's your neck right? All we have to go on is based on the biomechanical data to know that concussion requires a pretty substantial amount of force to cause the brain to stretch to a degree sufficient enough to cause the injury to take place, right? So then we have to use it as almost a diagnosis of exclusion. Do you recommend concussion headbands for female soccer? No. Um, the reason is because the evidence on them shows that there are no, they don't add any layer of protection against concussion injuries. In fact, you could wear a football helmet and it's not going to protect you against concussions because players in football still get concussions, right? Concussion is caused from the brain moving inside the skull. You can put whatever stupid little cap you want on the outside of your head and it's not going to change the fact that your brain is still moving inside of the skull. Right, Because if you put that little cap on, the ball is going to still hit you in the head and you're still going to fly back like this. And it's the flying back like this that causes the brain to move inside the skull. Most concussions don't come from heading the ball in soccer. In fact, in fact, less than, or I think it's 6%, 6% of concussions come from heading the ball in soccer or contact with the ball 77% or 75% or something like that. I can't remember the exact data, but it's, it's big 77% come from contact with another player. So it's running into each other. Now your little headband is not going to prevent the accelerative, the the acceleration from being transmitted to the head. You're still going to get a whip motion. If you run into somebody, the little headband is not going to stop that whipping motion. So there's no, there's nothing. Helmets have not been shown to reduce concussions. Um, you know, these headbands have not been shown to reduce concussions. And so it's one of those things that's a gimmick that says, oh yeah, that makes sense because people think about it. Oh yeah, you're protecting the head. No, you're protecting the skull, right? Maybe if you clack heads with somebody, you might prevent the skull from being fractured, might. Um, but the brain is still going to move inside of that skull and the concussion is still going to take place whether you have that on or not. So I would say that there's no real point. Question, will drinking when you have post-concussion symptoms delay recovery? Um, Yes, it might. Um, There's not a ton of research on this. Uh, In fact, there was actually, there was a study recently that was done from the University of Toronto where they looked at people in the acute phase 
Dave, if you're watching, good job. Um, Dave Lawrence at the University of Toronto published a study looking at people in the acute phases of concussion um, having um, drinking, smoking cannabis, and smoking cigarettes, and there was no delay in recovery uh, for any of those things in the early acute phases. Now, when it comes to PCS or post-concussion symptoms, we haven't really done any research on that, but what we know is inflammation is one of the potential causes of persistent symptoms. Alcohol is pro-inflammatory. So it is one of those things we tell people to avoid while they're trying to recover. Now, if inflammation is not the cause of your symptoms, drinking may not affect you, but we don't know. It's kind of trial and error, patient dependent. So um, typically when I have patients that say, Hey, it's, um, you know, it's my brother's birthday and I, you know, we're going out for drinks on the weekend. Um, would it be okay if I, you know, had a couple of drinks? I say, well, try it, see, see what happens. You're not going to, you know, do any, any overt damage by having a couple of drinks. You may feel crappy. Um, and that's, but you may not. So it's, it's kind of one of those things that you have to just try out for yourself. Cause it depends really on what's driving your symptoms. Sorry, I'm just reading through questions. What do you think about being in vision therapy and school with symptoms slightly worse because of vision therapy? Concussion therapy in general is meant to kind of temporarily make your symptoms worse. So a lot of concussion rehab is habituation and adaptation. So what that means is whatever is, if something causes an increase in symptoms, usually that's because that particular thing is a problem for you. And in order to help that problem, we have to push you into that problem a little bit so that it um, your tolerance for that becomes a little bit more and more. So if you're going to vision therapy and you're not getting symptoms, um, a slight increase in your symptoms, that means probably that you're not rehabbing the right thing anyway. So the fact that you're getting symptoms and the fact that your symptoms are being slightly increased is actually a good thing. I know that most people think of that and think that they've been so ingrained in their minds that you should be doing everything you can to avoid symptoms. But the reality of it is that um, you actually want to be kind of finding out where your symptoms are and pushing into those. So vision therapy, going to school with some slight increase in your symptoms, not a big deal. People asking like personal clinical questions that I can't answer. I'm sorry. Um, this question is, 
Post-concussion issues in a 19-year-old male over a year and a half post-concussion. No relief after seeing many providers. Is it feasible to participate with one of your clinics, uh, complete concussion management clinics, even if they're four to six hours away? To have good concussion care, you're going to need to follow up consistently uh, every single week for usually like 10 to 12 weeks. So um, if four to six hours away is okay for you to do every single week, for the next, you know, 12 weeks, that's a personal decision. Um, so it just depends on how willing you are to make that type of recurrent travel. I get people from all over the world that want to come and see me and they want to just fly in and have an appointment with me and think that I'm going to fix them in one day and they're going to be able to fly back to Norway or wherever they're coming from. And I basically say, look, I'm in clinic a couple days a week. The rest of the time I'm doing this, I'm doing research, I'm, um, I'm educating other people, so I'm only available a couple days a week. So in order for you to see me and have a good treatment plan in place, you would have to plan to be in Toronto for like 10 to 12 weeks because otherwise it's not worth your time to even come and see me because I'm not going to actually be able to do anything with you. Um, and so that's, and that's the thing. So if you're willing to make that trip uh, every single week for, for 10 to 12 weeks, um, then, you know, that's, that's a decision you'd have to make. Uh, when can an athlete know that they should quit sports due to too much head trauma? That's a great question. So um, I get this question a lot too. Uh, you know, I've had five concussions. Is that too many? There is no set number in the number of concussions that uh, you have. Um, the The big thing that we use for determining retirement decisions are, are you getting concussed easier and easier every time you get concussed? Okay, so that means that what once would have never caused an injury for you all of a sudden starts to cause concussion injuries, um, like you know, just routine things that never should have caused injury. Are they causing concussion now? And are your concussions taking longer and longer and longer each time to recover? If so, then you should be strongly considering giving up your contact sport and being doing something a little bit safer. Um, and the reason is because of that low vulnerability period that we've talked about before in various episodes, your energy levels get really, really low, right? If you get concussed in that low phase, that can extend your recovery period and make you more vulnerable in the future. So somebody that's having continuously getting injured at less and less force and taking longer and longer to recover, there's a thought that maybe they're in this perpetual cycle of ongoing vulnerability and they might be setting themselves up for, you know, increased risk of long-term repercussions. And so uh, those are the cases where I really um, encourage the person to take a second look at what they're doing and um, encourage them to uh, potentially hang up the, the skates as it were. The name of this podcast is Ask Concussion Doc. We also, we do have a clinic in New York City for Snap Mamas. Um, I currently had surgery. Does anesthesia affect you differently post-concussion? 
we don't know. I have not seen any studies on that particular topic. Anything on complete concussions? Question is, my doctors are now unsure if I have post-concussion syndrome, they're three years post-injury, or if I have hypermobility of my cervical spine and a whiplash injury, can you explain how to treat neck injuries? Um, it really depends if you have hypermobility. Generally, what you're doing is more like physical therapy and stabilization to try and increase the stability of your neck. If you have limited mobility or tightness in muscles and things like that, you might be doing more manual work. Uh, again depends on what the issue is and in order to know what the issue is you kind of got to go through um, a bit of an assessment with somebody who who really knows the neck because the neck is a whole thing um, Uh, the question is, what is a slight increase in symptoms on the 10-point scale? Typically, what we say to patients when doing vestibular or visual rehab is if your symptoms spike to uh, a 5 out of 10 or greater, then maybe take a break, wait till it comes down again, then go back and do it again. Uh, the other way to look at this is a three or more point increase from what your starting point is. So if you're doing, let's say, vision rehab and you have you know, dizziness of three out of 10 kind of at your base and you start doing you know, some gaze stabilization exercises, you're going to do that until your symptoms get to like a six out of 10 on dizziness and then you're going to stop, you're going to wait, wait till the symptoms come down again. Okay, now I'm back down to kind of you know, my baseline. Okay, go again doing my gaze stabilizations, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Okay, oh, I'm up to a 6 out of 10 again. I'm going to wait, wait till it comes down to a 3 out of 10. So uh, either way you want to look at it, if you want to go, I'm going to uh, a score of 5 out of 10, take a break, or a 3 or more point increase on your 10-point scale, take a break. This doesn't mean to abandon. This means just to take a break and let it come down because it's all temporary. None of this stuff is going to create any type of long-lasting impairment. I think that's what people need to get around. Get your head around the fact that this isn't bad for you. This is actually good for you. Let's see if there's any over here. That's it. Okay, guys. Thanks for joining us. Um, Bell Let's Talk Day. Make sure you share, post, text. Um, I guess they don't... Um, they don't do uh, iMessages, so make sure you turn off your iMessages so that everything is sent via text and they donate money to mental health initiatives. So uh, Bell Let's Talk Day in Canada. Support the initiative. Share posts. Hashtags Bell Let's Talk Day. Thank you guys for joining us. I hope I was able to answer enough of your questions um, to uh, go. Oh, one more came in. How long does it take a practitioner to get trained with uh, complete concussion management? Our course is... 40 hours of content and uh, we give you about eight and a half, nine weeks to do it. Um, we try to kind of push you through to um, um, keep you on top of things and, and moving. Otherwise, if you give you too much time, you'll forget what you learned in the first part. So we try to kind of keep things building on, uh, on stuff. But uh, anyway, see you guys. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. Just one more thing before you go. This episode is brought to you by the Complete Concussion Management Clinical Network. Are you suffering from concussion symptoms that just aren't getting better? Maybe you're in the wrong place. 
maybe you're seeing the wrong healthcare professional. Visit completeconcussion.com slash find dash a dash clinic to find all the local professionally trained concussion rehab individuals in your area. Each of our partnered clinics have gone through extensive training on concussion assessment, management, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation. Uh, They're going to work with you to try and find the root cause of your symptoms and then develop a treatment plan and approach to help get rid of them. If you don't know what's driving the symptoms, you can't ever help or hope to fix them. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. They have a 98% patient satisfaction rating and have a higher net promoter score than Amazon, Apple, and Netflix. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. You will not regret it. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.